Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, we've got more best and worst for you. The categories are as follows. Wingers, youth prospects, fouls and press boxes. Lots to get into, so let's start right now. Let's take you now into our series of remote audio recording facilities where I'm joined first up by JJ Bull. How are you, JJ? Hello, Tom. I'm doing well, thank you. What a lovely day. That's that's great to hear. It is a yes. lovely day. Are you enjoying nice. you enjoying looking outside through a window? Yeah, um, I've just realised that I haven't been outside for two days. Uh, oh, no. But I will address that today. Everything's Good. fine. Good to know. How about you, Mina Rizuki? Are you going for your government-mandated exercise? I haven't left the house in three weeks. Three weeks? <laughs> you haven't actually left the house at all? No. Oh, oh my God! What well, is wow. this? Stay home, save lives. That's what I'm doing. I'm staying wow. home and I'm saving lives and I'm getting a... food deliveries and that's it. You're allowed out for exercise, though, Mina. Surely once a day. I'm like a scaredy cat because the... okay, I'll explain this. Because my parents live next to me and I like to go visit them, and so if I can't do that, if I'm going out, so. So you have been to visit them. You've been out of your house or flat. Well, or they're in the same building. <laughs> oh right. So that is, you know, <laughs> that's a scenario not many of us would want to live in the same building as our parents. But oh my god, I insisted on it. I actually moved closer at the time. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Matt Law? I'm fine. I'm fine. I have to get out of the house at least once a day. Well, once a day. Otherwise, I just start going a bit mental and shouting at people. Yeah, that's good. Just well, save your, sh- save yeah. your shouting for the podcast, mate. You can let it all out as we get into today's categories. The first one is wingers. And you've nominated your best ever winger, Mina. Uh, I've got some questions for you, but tell, tell us first who it is. I don't know. I mean, when I when I saw this, I thought the obvious answer would have to be Ronaldo and not Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously. Like, he's not just the world's greatest winger. He's the world's greatest player alongside Lionel Messi, obviously. Um, and this question was put to Premier League and it was they voted him as the best ever winger. As You know, he's won the Ballon d'Or five times. In 2008 alone, he scored 31 goals and assisted seven goals in 34 games for Manchester United. He's won 29 major trophies. There's really very little this man cannot do. And his determination and his flexibility positioning-wise, how he's adjusted to his age, the fact that he can still accelerate at a ridiculous pace to get past opponents and get the goals in, or to deliver that winning assist or that perfect cross is astonishing to watch. 
the array of flicks and tricks and uh, he's not always great on set pieces. I do get that. But I mean, if you're building a team and you're having a number seven, you're going to surely go for Cristiano Ronaldo. My problem with this is that you wouldn't play him on the wing, would you, Mina? You don't think so? I still would. Would you? Um, would you play him on the... So that would if still you were be picking... his starting position. Really? So if, yeah. if you were you were putting together a team, you'd start Cristiano Ronaldo on the wing? I would, yeah. And then cool, I, I would fine, still have fine. a centre forward. Cool. Would you not? That's that's why. I, well, that's why I wouldn't pick him because I wouldn't. I wouldn't have him on the wing. No. Yeah, I'm the same oh. as Matt. I think the player, the definition of the roles is very important here. And so, if he's a winger, <laughs> it should be a player that plays on the wing with that side of foot. Otherwise, you're an inside forward, or you're a false winger, which is not a real winger, or a, a wide midfielder, which is also different to a winger. So then, have I broken the rules, JJ? Well, in that I case, centre backs. No, really I, I, no, because he was a I winger think... for like a good season or so. Like we was at uh, we was at the Sport in Lisbon. He was a he was really a winger, and then he was a winger at United at the start. But they moved him because he was right footed. He always played in the left, but he did play a few games on the right as a winger. I mean, he still starts off at the right for you, there. I mean, he moves inwards. As long as you're playing him as a wing, as long as you're playing him as a winger in any team you pick me, and I'm I'm happy to let this through. But that, that's the reason why. <laughs> Thank you so much. If he was an obvious winger, though, I think we'd have probably all picked him. Because if we're all saying you would pick him in the wing, then yeah, you'd probably all pick him. JJ, you've gone very trad with your pick. Who have you got? Well, when you think of wingers, the first one I always think of is uh, Ryan Giggs, who is a proper left winger. And I think wingers kind of belong to when 4-4-2 was the formation everyone played or a 4-5-1, something like that. So you have someone on the left who gets up the wing, puts in the ball to the box for two strikers. That was generally the formation that most teams played. And I, I remember growing up watching football that Ryan Giggs just seemed to be like the most famous, the best player. And I think that it's it also interesting that having been a winger who relied a lot on pace and trickery, he was then able to, to turn into a centre midfielder later in his career and was also really decent there for United. How did he manage to go for so long, JJ? Especially in the position which you associate very much with being young and being quick. Mm. The length of his career just seems more and more remarkable the further away we get from it. I think he's a really like football intelligent player. He uh, a lot of the stuff he did when he was younger was relying on being good at one v one situations. So he knows he knew where to attack certain spaces and he, uh, there's, a, there's a video with him on the coach's voice where he talks ab- about how when Dennis Irwin would get the ball uh, Dennis Irwin's right foot is stronger so as soon as he put the ball on his right foot Giggs would know to uh, go and attack the space in the left wing to get in behind him and I think later in his career uh, well he attributes it a lot to um, to doing yoga and things like that is how he's able to actually physically do it because he was playing really young every single week when he was about 17, 18 a proper first team mainstay and uh, it's that he's able to read the game and work alongside other players that is probably how he's able to do it for so long. Like Because when you slow down, you have to adjust your game a little bit. And that's a proper uh, transition. But also, he had to adapt his game because United stopped playing with wingers because they started playing with inverted wingers in a 4-3-3 or a, um, the same thing in a 4-5-1, which is sort of the same. And uh, that's why he didn't suddenly have a left winger or a right winger. And on that point about the positions and the, and the roles, David Beckham would be another one you associate with playing wide right, I think, but he's a wide midfielder who would hit early balls rather than a winger who I think you have to see their winger if they take a defender one-on-one and dribble past him before crossing. That's what makes it a winger. Do you, do you remember when, when Giggs first came through? It was when just straight after Lee Sharp had 
appeared on the scene. And I just remember that. It was around sort of 1990, 1991. And that was such an exciting thing, I, I thought, because Lee Sharp appeared, who I think people forget how good Lee Sharp actually was to start with. Um, I think more his downfall was to do with, with probably his private life and the way he looked after himself. But when he first came on the scene, I think he won Young Player of the Year and he was excellent. And then all of a sudden, within a year, Giggs, who was a couple of years younger than him, came on the scene and was even better than him. And he won Young Player of the Year the following year. And it just like felt mega exciting. And then kind of Steve McManaman suddenly appeared for Liverpool too. Great days. Uh, your pick, Matt, slightly before those two for his best era. Uh, who have you got? Well, he probably wasn't, but his, his best era was his best era in England was after that. But he was winning league earns with Olympic Marseille in, <laughs> in the Giggs Lee Sharp era at Man United. That's true. Mine's, mine's Chris Waddle, who I actually think gets overlooked quite a lot of just how good he was. He was incredible. He won three league under Marseille. He was a European Cup runner up there. Um, obviously, famously part of that England team who got to the semi-finals. Um, but I mean, I remember him most as a fan from watching him when he when he came back um, for the start of the Premier League and and went to Sheffield Wednesday. I just thought he was he was absolutely sensational. I used to love the way he 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 enjoyed making players look silly. He would turn defenders back and forth to, to leave them on their backside two or three times when he really didn't need to. You know, he'd, I, I've re-watched footage of him this weekend and he would turn round past a defender and wait for them to get up and come again and turn back them again. There's actually a great piece of footage where he leaves Ryan Giggs on his backside twice um, when, when Giggs is going up against him. And I just love, I love the fact actually as well that he wasn't quick. I mean, that, that's the thing you, th you always think of wingers as being fast. And he was actually, he was quite tall, um, not very, not very fast at all, but just had a lovely way of jinking round players and, and getting by them and then either whipping a ball in or, or, you know, going for a top corner. Great, great player to watch. Quite fun on the radio as well. Quite fun on the radio, quite great company. I mean, I, I've spent, I've been fortunate enough because he's on the radio to spend, to spend nights out with him. I, I watched Sheffield Wednesday versus Sheffield United with him last season in a Dortmund pub um, when I was over there covering Tottenham and so was he for Radio 5. And I love the fact a group of Tottenham fans came in singing his name and he, he set them right and said, no, 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 my club Sheffield Wednesday, you guys never got behind me when I was at Tottenham. And he won't have it <laughs> that he's any sort of Tottenham legend. He's very much uh, all about the Wednesday. And uh, on that same night, he was quite drunk and I was far more interested in talking to him about his appearance on Top of the Pops um, yes. than I was his actual football. He was on, when it was him and Gled Hoddle for, uh, for Diamond Lights, he was on with the Smiths, Kim Wilde and Terence Trent Derby. Oh my goodness. And he told me that just before the, the show was about to start, Morrissey basically told him and Glenn Hoddle they should stick to playing football and was very unfriendly. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, when you're thinking of greatest wingers, do you like? Is, was that the first name that came into your head? I just wanted to know how like yeah. you, when you yeah. prepare, really over like someone. Would you have considered like Ronaldinho? Or he's a ten. Ronaldinho is a as a winger at all. Yeah, he's never inside forward on the left, or he's a he's a number ten. I thought someone like Figo would be the other one that would maybe maybe count. I mean. Also, you could also I'm, have I'm, Chris Waddles, mate, uh, Morrissey, famous right winger, as we know well at this point. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> <That's> great shout. <laughs>
He's not my nomination though. I've gone for a left winger and um, Gareth Bale when he came through uh, properly at Spurs after that uh, insane start to his Spurs career after he joined from Southampton where he wasn't on a winning side for ages. And then in that 10-11 season where he just really uh, kind of fully blossomed and what I liked about him then was that there was no messing about. It was staying wide, beating people for pace, absolutely destroying Mike on uh, the San Siro, although I think that was a season or two afterwards. But uh, just as an example of how powerful someone in that slightly peripheral position could be, um, I'll always have very fond memories of him at that time. He was magnificent. Keane Bale could go all the way here, Gareth Bale. Naomi coming out, but Bale, not phased, takes the chance superbly. And Tottenham have their two-goal margin restored. And what a young prospect they seem to have acquired from Southampton. Let's move on to our second category, which is youth prospects. And the brief here was to think about players who we all knew about for a long time before they came through. And then perhaps they became brilliant, perhaps they didn't. You sent a bunch of names over, JJ. What do all those names have in common and who's your nomination? Uh, well, my nomination is uh, the first player I've I've seen that I didn't really know anything about before I saw him was the boy Erling Haaland, who's now at Borussia Dortmund. And uh, within seconds of seeing him, I th- thought he was something special. I think I read something on Twitter that some boy from Norway had scored this amount of goals for his youth team and then he's doing this here for uh, for the team he's at before. Is it Salzburg he was at, wasn't it? And uh, watching him, yeah, like I say, it was clear that he's pretty special. But normally I know who these players are because I've played, as you may know, quite a bit of football manager in my time. <laughs> And their their scouting database is it's it's pretty amazing what it is, and actual football clubs use it as a as a scouting tool. They don't. I mean, that's not all they use, obviously, but because um, the detail that their database goes into, they're able to clubs are able to use that to identify certain players, and clubs actively look for uh, who the wonder kids are considered on the game within the database. I mean, a lot of them are already know because they all have their own data setups now but clubs will also make sure they hide their young players so that scouts especially football manager scouts cannot see them so that they don't get the rating high enough so other clubs poach them <laughs> that's a real thing that happens uh, so there's players that I mean growing up Joe Cole was one that was good uh, Ronaldinho was a player that everyone knew was going to be huge Mbappe they rated really highly from the minute they saw him and sure enough he went big Simon Davies was like a, a big player one of them I think it was Championship Manager 3 maybe but Davies, like, so sure enough, he didn't become a world star like maybe you thought he would in the game. But he was like he had a good, solid career. And this is a boy I think he was playing for Peterborough at the time when they they had him. And to be able to spot that level of talent then, and to see where how many games he played in the Premier League afterwards, is quite a good sign that it works. It's always been quite an interesting piece to read these pieces about um, the wonder kids at Football Manager or Championship Manager or whatever who who weren't ever any good. I, I probably was into Championship Manager for about two years only when I was around, I don't know, 15, 16. Mm. And I remember the one at Derby, Tonto, Zola, Makuku or something. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. And there was um, the Cherno Samba one. And there was a, la- a Swedish, Kim Kallström. Kim Kallström, yeah. Yeah, Kallström made it to Arsenal Kim, in the end. He did, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's always interesting reading kind of... I read one about the Derby lad recently and was very interested in it Cherno um, Samba's never one that's quite a big name there's a lot, a lot of this I think is really interesting especially actually you look at Freddie Adu so uh, 
I've been speaking to a lot of managers recently for some stuff I'm writing for the te- for Telegraph Online, and uh, the thing that all managers say, every single coach says, is that it doesn't really matter how talented the player is. The most important thing is their mentality, and the ones who work the hardest and want it the most, the most ambition and the most desire to be able to fulfil that are the ones who go on. So you'll have players like Ravel Morrison, who everyone says is amazing, um, will be the same amount of talent as someone like Cherno Samba. So when you look at his what he's actually doing at a certain level he's playing at and what you see on the pitch. If the mentality doesn't match that, they're not going to achieve that. And what you see now within the games book manager is that their mental stats are so, so important. If you have the player with all 20s, say, they think he's going to be the next Messi, but his determination is anything below 14, he just won't make use of it because you have to have that mental stuff to be able to do it. That's the first thing that, for example, UV, when they come to scouting, um, if they have like, for example, that's how they chose Arturo Vidal, that's how they chose Bonucci. Bonucci was like the lesser partner to Andrea Ranocchi at the time, who was the great centre-back, the upcoming one in Italy. But they just thought that Bonucci really wanted it. And so they're like, we're going to bet on him because he's so determined. He's so desperate to be the next great defender of our time. So they were like, yeah, we're going to go all for him. And he made a ton of mistakes in the beginning of his career, was always a little considered reckless. But mentality means everything. I mean, Zidane famously said at the time when he was about 13 or 14 that he was probably one of the poorest in his sort of age group when it came to actual technical talent, considering what was around him. But he just wanted it more and he became Zidane. Good lesson there. Want it, become Zidane. What about you, <laughs> Matt? This this is a blast from the past, your name. Yeah, I mean, just before I get into the one I've actually picked, I, I did see Rooney in an FA Youth Cup tie um, Everton actually played Villa in the FA Youth Cup final when Rooney was 16 and I mean he was just unbelievable um, I mean he, he was just a bulldozer absolute bulldozer but did you know um, about him going into that game or did you was yeah the first everyone had, him I seeing think, him that day I think for about a year people had been talking about him and he was one of these that you did see the odd bit of clips of and and stuff like that um, but then you, you watched him and you, you literally couldn't think of any way this lad wasn't going to be incredible. Um, and in fairness, he lived up to all the hype. Um, but the, the one that the one that me, and it's very personal choice, this is as a, a lad called Nee Lamptey, who his story has been retold quite a few times by various newspapers um, over the last year, because it's actually a really sad story. Um, just to give a bit of background on him, the 1991 Under-17 World Championship, um, Ghana won it, and he was voted best player of the tournament, age 16. Other players in that tournament were Del Piero, Veron, uh, and Marcello Gallardo. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it was an incredible thing. Pele himself, after that tournament, called him the new Pele. So, you know, it's one <laughs> thing, we've had loads of... <laughs> We've had loads of new Messi's and new Maradonas and new Pele's, but I'm not convinced there's ever been one called by the guy himself. But Pele, Pele said it himself that this lad's the new Pele. Um, he went over to Belgian league and age 16 for Anderlecht scored seven goals in 14 games in his first season. Um, in, the, in the senior league, that is. Youngest ever player in the Belgian league. Then moved to PSV on loan, which was weird. There was obviously some dodgy going on there. And age 17, scored 10 goals in 22 games. Um, and his name was whirling around. And then I, I just, I literally remember the day I was at school. I was 15. And I remember the day I was at school and finding out that Villa had signed him. And I think I picked up a, a, a copy of the, the local paper. 
and reading about him. And I was just amazed that Villa had got this player that was called the New Pelé and at 16, 17 was, was scoring all these goals. And being naive at the time, I just assumed we had actually signed the New Pelé. I was so excited. And I went to um, the one and only game he scored. He ended up scoring at Villa Park, which was a League Cup game against Wigan in the same season Villa ended up winning the League Cup. And he was incredible. He he was dancing around players. From this, this game, the highlights are still on YouTube. And he scored a brilliant solo goal. He was beating men all over the place. And I mean, the whole crowd just thought, wow, what have we got? And he scored goals then in the away leg of that game and then never scored another goal and virtually didn't play for Villa again. It's since transpired that an agent had basically took him to Villa uh, for the commission and and kind of profited from the fact that he was also illiterate through his his upbringing and basically just robbed him blind. Um, and he, he couldn't deal with with being in England at all. It, it became really sad. He, he went over to he played for Coventry, flopped again, went over to Italy, and one of his ch- children died. Um, there oh, was a God. big row. He wanted to take one of his children to to Ghana to get them buried. The one that died and wasn't allowed to, and he ended up giving up football. Um, and there's been loads of interviews with him since. It's, an, it's if, if you haven't really heard of him or read his story, it's an incredibly sad, but incredibly, well, just an amazing story, really. Saunders points to where he wants the ball played, but he's uh, got the scent of glory in his nostrils here, Lamptey. And it's a goal from deep inside his own half, Neil Lamptey. Less amazing story for me, but uh, my nomination is Joe Cole because living in London and listening as I did regularly to London-based radio stations and especially London-based football coverage, you were hearing about Joe Cole from the age of about 13, it seemed. He was one of those players who was so obviously talented uh, at such a young age that everyone knew about him years and years before he eventually broke through. And I think he completely delivered on his promise. He, One of the things I like about him, and it reminded me, um, what you're saying about Giggs reminded me a little bit of this, JJ, that he did have peaks and troughs in his career and he came through them and he reinvented himself slightly. He got absolutely um, destroyed at times by uh, Jose Mourinho and, and adapted his game. Uh, I, I think he was brave to go abroad when he did. And, you know, in the end, we all want to finish our career playing for the Tampa Bay Rowdies. So um, a, a great... A great career from a very promising player. I, I would agree. I, I interviewed Joe Cole last se- last season, um, and it, we we did the interview all about the fact of being the original Wonder Kid. And I ended up a feeling incredibly sorry for him about mm. the, the his um, his younger days, and b thinking it's actually incredible what he went on to achieve with the pressure. I mean, the stories he told when on his seventeenth birthday he signed his first professional contract for West Ham on the pitch. And the stadium announcer announced to the whole crowd that that would be a day they would end up telling their grandchildren about while the 17-year-old <laughs> kid oh was God. signing his first professional. I mean, imagine that now, the, the pressure that puts on. At 15, two years before that, he was on the back page of a Sunday newspaper, the lead story saying that he earned more than the Prime Minister. It said that <laughs> he was on £5,000 a week as a 15-year-old and that he was earning more than the Prime Minister. And he said that even teachers, not just school children at his school, were making comments about that at the time, about sarky comments about how much he was earning. 
So that the fact he went on to achieve what he did, I actually think is incredible because he was put under ridiculous pressure and stress as a, oh. as a teenager. You just can't do that to kids. You just can't. I mean, fortunately, it's not, not, so, not so common anymore, but I, I couldn't believe it when I spoke to him about it. Then that shows, I mean, it's come back to the, the point we're talking about with, with Wonder Kids and everything is that Cole had that huge amount of talent, but he had the key ingredient, which is determination and the mental fortitude to come through it which is why he did it, and so many others will just have crumbled it far less pressure. Exactly. <laughs> Yours crumbled, Mina. Who have you got? Mine is, okay, so one of my first jobs as a broadcaster was to do this YouTube show, and I had to do, like, weird and wonderful things, and I had to speak to, like, random people, like, in different countries who would talk to you about, like, what was going on in their leagues. Um, so it forced me to watch a lot more sort of, wild football than I would do now. Um, and I remember at the time, like through all of this, I had started to spot like um, Luis Suarez in the Eredivisie and he was just like fantastic to watch at the time. Um, but the true talent that was shining was a kid in the Copa Libertadores in 2008-9 and he was called Nicolas Ladero. And he was being compared to um, Enzo Francescoli because he was, you know, just as creative, just as intelligent, um, just as quick in thought and his ability to be flexible and versatile and everything that he was doing at the time. So this kid was like lighting up the stage and he was helping his team Nacional in the Copa Libertadores, got them to reach the semi-finals, was just delivering assists after like goal. And he would know when to move out to the flanks and start the overloads or he knew when to stay central. He was a playmaker, so like, you're number 10, you know. And it was like, who, who is this guy? Like, he, he was something that, when you think of Uruguay, you think of players that are firstly really physically fit, you know, stamina, like robust, um, capable. And there was just this guy in between who just sort of reminded you of, you know, like, you know, Francescoli, like Zidane, that, that number 10 that everyone wanted in their team. Um, and he was amazing and he was so amazing that Suarez started talking to Ajax and was like, we need this kid in Ajax and I want him with me. Um, and he helped in negotiations to bring Ladero to Ajax. In the 20, 2010 World Cup in the playoff game, Uruguay played Costa Rica. He was man of the match in the second leg. Um, he was just this kid that was just going to blow up and be like, you know, he was dubbed the Uruguayan Messi. And then he suffered an injury suffered an injury in the World Cup, which meant that he, when he had reached Ajax, he didn't play a single game for in, in the 2010-2011 season. And it just got away from him. And now he's in the MLS. And I think it's like Seattle Sounders. I really don't know the team that he's with now. But it's so weird to see like everything he could have become and everything that he just didn't, because he was one of those people. Like, you know, do you remember Giuseppe Rossi? Like at United? Yeah, yeah. It was just it was just sometimes you just feel like, you know, it just takes one or two injuries and and then it's just a string of things and then sometimes it affects your mentality as well for you to keep pushing to come back, keep pushing to come back to be the player that you are. And you lose hope. And I kinda just feel like when you watch him and he still has those moments because like I was speaking to somebody who, who covers the MLS and he's like he still has his moments to be like really special. Like you know he grew up with like good technical understanding. But he's just nowhere near what you thought he was going to be at the time. And for me, him and, and Luis Suarez were just everything. I watched them all the time. 
Um, and, and to think like I knew like this was going to be something special. And Suarez obviously went on to have like an astonishingly amazing career. And Ladero just sort of fell away by the wayside. Yeah, a sure sign that being called the next anything is bad news. Although I do want to know, Matt, are you going to nominate anyone as the next Matt Law like Pele did? <laughs> uh, only if they want to be quite lazy. Chi <laughs> Bull reporting for Chi. <laughs> Uh, the answer is no, obviously. <laughs> it's a shame. It's a shame. We'll keep an eye on your Twitter just in case. <laughs> Go beyond the headlines with The Telegraph's daily coronavirus podcast, a roundup of the latest news on the pandemic from our leading journalists with analysis on the impact on health, business and travel every weekday evening. Search coronavirus the latest on your podcast app. Let's move on to our third topic today, which is fouls. Uh, I'm not sure you can have a best ever foul, but maybe I'm going to be proved wrong. Matt, start us off. What have you got? My, mine's, well, I've got, I've got two. My, okay. and they're both my best ever fouls. The, the main okay. one that I picked was Benjamin Massing on Claudio Canidja in the first game of the World Cup 1990. And oh, just man. literally for the fact that, that that foul, if you ever say to me, think about your best foul or the worst foul ever, that is always the one that just come, comes to mind. I mean, that Benjamin Massing at the time, well, probably a bit later, became a bit of a sort of cult figure among me and a group of mates, just on the basis of that one challenge, which I'm sure most people are aware of. It's the last minute of the game, first game of the 1990 World Cup, Cameroon one up and Argentina break. And Kanidja from his own half, I mean, the two challenges that which went in on him first would easily have been red cards if, if he hadn't managed to somehow ride them. He rides one bad challenge, then gets into the, the Cameroon half. Someone else has a wild swing at him, which he dances over. And then Massing just comes from the side from nowhere and has obviously been thinking, if he gets past that guy, there's only one thing on my mind, I'm cleaning him out. And it's an assault. It's a full-on assault. I mean, there's, no, there's nowhere near the ball. There's nothing in his mind other than to just clean him out and try and get through the last minute or two of the game. Um, he obviously got sent off for it, but I think Benjamin Massing is known to people simply on that that tackle alone. And he, again, I, I looked to see what he's doing now and quickly found interviews with him talking about the fact that he's quite happy about the fact everywhere he goes, um, everyone just says, oh, you're the guy who, who took out Kanidja. Um, so I, I, it, it was kind of the game that, that brought Cameroon to everyone's attention because of the result, but also because of of that and in that game, other than you know Roger Miller swinging his hips and things, they they were a dirty, dirty, dirty team. The other one I wanted to mention as a, as an aside, um, since then was was Dion Dublin, both for his foul on Robbie Savage, which was an incredible two footed challenge in a Villa versus Birmingham City game, and then he he gets up, Savage is appealing for a red card, and with the referee stood next to him, Dublin just headbutts him. In, in probably one of the clearest and best headbutts you're ever likely, ever likely to see. And the fact it was on Savage made it doubly delicious. Yeah, mine's not a million miles away. I went for um, Harold Schumacher taking out Patrick Battiston for France in the 82 World Cup. No, yours final. is a million miles away. Yours is the best well, choice by far when I was reading okay. through them. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks very much, Mina. Again, Matt used the word assault. This was an assault with a kind of airborne arse this time. Um, just <laughs> absolutely wipes him out inconceivable now looking at this that he wasn't sent off he, he remained on the pitch and saved two penalties in the shootout so um proving once and for all that 
goalkeepers just can do what they like. Does he? Does he mean it though? I think I think that uh, you can make an argument that this was momentum and carelessness and the Ooh. recklessness of the eighties rather than anything quite so cynical as Massing. Oh my god, what are you talking about? Okay, Massing was totally cynical, but in every choice that I was reading, like yours and JJ's, and that I can understand the need to do all of them. You know, like I can understand even Luis Suarez biting people. Yeah, there's a certain level of like madness where it comes to do or die. Like, I've got to do everything that it takes. You know, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to whatever it is. Yeah. But with Schumacher, firstly, he was insane during that entire game. If, if anyone ever wants to watch that game again, it is such a good game to watch. Yeah. He's like, a, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'll be honest. I watched that game once and I actually went on to look at the fact if he had gone on to commit any crimes because he has like all these sociopathic like tendencies. He just doesn't show any empathy. And it was so bizarre that you would go straight into a guy who falls straight on the floor, flat. Platini thinks he's dead. And Schumacher's just standing there like chewing his gum as if nothing's just happened. Doesn't even go to check what's happened. And then continues to perform at the highest level. And not only that, there was this incident as well with Didier Six before where Platini tells him to calm down because he just looks at him like he's about to eat him. I'm telling you, there's something wrong. Like, that was such a bizarre game. And I just feel like because of his performances, it's the reason they didn't win the World Cup. It was just like, it's like karma. Yeah, or total exhaustion <laughs> by the time they got to the final. What have you, what have you picked, Nina? I went for um, Nigel De Jong versus Xabi Alonso in 2010. Mm. Firstly, it was just a World Cup I didn't enjoy that much. But it was a game I didn't enjoy that much because it was just like one of those where it was so physical. It was like thousands of yellow cards dished out, 14 in general, nine to the Dutch side, um, which was bizarre because you sort of wanted them to play a different game. And even Howard Webb, when he looks back on this match, always says, I couldn't get over how physical it was. Um but it, the incident happened at the 25th minute and it's like, and it was described by Guy Mowbray who was commentating it as a karate kick. And it's exactly that because Javi Alonso is looking elsewhere, um, looking at the ball coming towards him from the right-hand side. And De Jong just thinks he can get it with a high boot and he obviously ends up kicking him in the chest effectively. And it was just like, all you felt when you watched that scene is you held your chest because you almost felt like it was happening to you. <laughs> Because you're just like, oh, that was so painful, you know? Um, and then, you know, nothing happened because Howard Webb at the time said that his incident was partially, you know, it was partially blocked for him and he just didn't want to take the chance of sending someone off when he hadn't seen the whole incident properly. And so De Jong stayed on. And um, yeah, well, it doesn't matter because Iniesta won it. It does fall into the category of nothing bad can happen as long as you do it in the first sort of 10, 20 minutes of the game. <laughs> yeah. Just do what you like, because you're never mm. getting a red card. JJ, what have you picked? Uh, the only thing I can think of straight away was uh, um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer scything down Rob Lee, uh, Man United mm -hmm. versus Newcastle. It's 97, 98 season. And uh, Tamuri Ketz by, uh, remember him? Just Georgian, yes. wasn't he? Yeah, oh, he was yeah. good fun. Kicked the hell out of uh, some advertising boards once when he scored. So he, he launches the ball into the opposition half. Rob Lee has the entire half to run into, isn't quite fast enough, and Solskjaer comes like a blue shell in Mario Kart, gets right up to him, takes him out, and I remember at the time uh, like bursting out laughing because it's like when you do like a training game in, a, in FIFA or something and you just push the hard file button over and over again on the computer people. That's what he does. But he doesn't go to hurt him, he's just taken him out. So it's, it's within the rules, sort of, of the game. 
So obviously, you know, you know it's a red card. As soon as you see him start to run, you know it's a red card coming. I think that's why it's funnier when it, when it actually does. But I would, I mean, I would have supported that all the way through. Like, well, well, well David Beckham does. David Beckham gives him a pat on the back yeah. as, he, as he goes off. Beckham makes a point of going over to him and pats him on the back. But I read him. Well done. That apparently Alex Ferguson said that uh, that's not the way we win at Man United. Um, was it? Yeah, at Manchester United, we never win that way. We win by fair play. Solskjaer told he, he, Solskjaer said in the magazine, yeah, he said it was an eye opener for him because some managers would have been like, "Well done," I would have been applauding him. I was, I didn't support you, you know, Man United at the time, but I would have uh, been applauding him at the time. But I think I was. It was so funny. God, just watching them dart towards him, it was great. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, a lot of diehard United fans, I think, will will say that that moment was a moment where he he became a real sort of legend within the club. <laughs> that they really took him to their heart because it meant he couldn't. It was a title running, didn't it? And it, it kept them yeah. alive in the title race. Yeah, they were the drawn one all at the title. I think That's Arsenal it. won the league eventually. But it's yeah, that but kind of they, thing. If, if they'd have lost, they were out of it that day. And apparently, obviously, Solskjaer then wasn't available for the rest of the season, which had about two or three games to go. And um, it kept United alive and they didn't actually end up winning it. But it, it apparently gave him a very special place in a lot of United fans parts that tackle I think you should think- watch it over again with Benny Hill music in the background <laughs> our final category today I must admit when it came through when producer Joel picked it I, I became incredibly sheepish because the category is press boxes and uh, I'm about to expose myself as a total fraud because <laughs> I have never covered a football match professionally I have been to plenty of other sporting events and been in the press boxes. I've, I've done quite a lot of NFL. Uh, so I have to say Wembley Stadium, just because I've done lots of NFL reporting from there, but never been in a press box as a working football journalist because I'm from the internet. So let's move on very quickly to some more uh, uh, established and, let's face it, better journalists. Uh, what have you got, Mina? <laughs> I haven't been to that many... Um... Mine is probably the Bentegodi in Verona. Now, this is really, it's a hard thing for me because I feel like the press box is so, uh, it's like the moment that I felt like I became a journalist. So it's always really special for me and I'm always really excited to be What's that like, Nina? Press conference. <laughs> <laughs> it was, no, like, <laughs> at the time, it's like, I know how you feel like at the time, like you do all of this work, but then you enter it and then you're like, hi, I'm press. There's a certain prestige to it that I, I've got to say, when I felt it, I was like, oh, you know, I love every press box that I'm in. I just feel like I'm so part of the show when I'm doing this. Um, but there was only one time when I was like, I don't care if I get sacked. Um, and that wasn't the Pentagogy because it was a game that was in August at the time. And it was about 42 degrees and there's no AC Um, So when the different coaches would come and talk to you, it's like millions of people staffed, no regard for social distancing. (laughs) And it would just be like, like, it's obviously like really old stadium. So everything is very like about to fall apart. So you're sort of watching yourself because you're really scared half the time that you're going to die. But I just remember feeling like it was, I had to just sit there and pour water down my head like over and over again while I was watching the match. And afterwards, when it came to having to ask, like, and listen to what the coaches had to say in their post-match conference, I was like, there's just no way I'm going into that room because just inside the room, someone said it was 53 degrees. It was that hot to be inside that stadium in August. And I just, I mean, being in a stadium like that and then seeing stuff like 
you know, even the ones that we don't like in London um, or, or in England in general from Arsenal or whatever it is that people always comment on. Um, or, God, when you just compare it to something like Juventus Stadium where everything is so professional and high level, it's so bizarre to think these stadiums, but then they have so much other stuff to them that makes them so beautiful, like the views or or the fact that they're surrounded by such nice things to look at. Um, but yeah, that was for me like the most horrendous thing. And honestly, I'd finished about four bottles of water on top of my head and the cameraman was carrying my bag and my shoes because I was walking around barefoot because I thought I was going to die at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Very upset, you've badmouthed my beloved Hellas Verona, Mina. Uh, JJ, what have you got? Well, like you, Tom, as you know, I am from the internet and not a real journalist or person. <laughs> and, uh, but going to Arsenal, I managed to go to, to um, see Arsenal play in the press box. Anyone who's not been a football writer, you know, trying to get into it and stuff like that, it's very much, uh, what's, what's the phrase, um, uh, imposter syndrome. Where you walk yes. into this place, you're going to the Emirates and you're you're walking like, what the hell am I doing? They're letting me in? What? And then you go through this, they give you a badge. It's like, why is my name on this? Walk through and all the people are there. You see all the famous journalists that you know and you people on the TV. Then you sit down as though you're really meant to be there and you're watching the game and you're pretending to write on the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the game happens, you file your thing, you go into the, the, the press conference bit afterwards and the, the manager's sitting like 10 metres away from you. Now, still, I've done it a good few times now, but still now, I, I don't lose that kind of excitement of it. It's so, mm. uh, it's incredible. Having wanted to do this forever and then being able to do it is an amazing feeling. But Arsenal was where I first uh, realised that I could sort of, I could do this. This is a thing I can do. And it was really cool seeing Arsenal Wenger so close. The view from the press box is nice. They have nice food. Often, people always talk about that at Arsenal. They have nice food. And then um, also I can walk there from my house. And that's why. <laughs> Yeah, can't argue with any of that. Uh, come on, Matt, you're you're proper. What, what's your pick? Um, yeah, mine's not so much a press box in the end. My most memorable one is Kazakhstan away, two thousand and nine. It was England's first ever game in Kazakhstan during the World Cup um, campaign for the two thousand and ten World Cup, and th there was a lot made of it at the time because obviously, you know sort of weary Borat jokes being made in the press and <laughs> no one knew what to expect when they got to Kazakhstan. And, and it was huge for, for Kazakhstan and they, they laid on the best. And it was, in, it was obviously a famous England. There were a lot of famous, you know, it was one of the kind of starry type England, England teams at the time. Um, and, I mean, it was a bizarre trip. I mean, just to try and give a, a sense of, of what this trip was like before I take you into the press box. I mean... First of all, the, the Kazakhstan press had invited the English press for um, a game, the I think the day before the actual match, um, which isn't in itself particularly remarkable. It, it often used to happen. It doesn't happen quite so much these days. Um, but what, what was weird is when we turned up, we were at this kind of little, almost this little, like mini stadium. People had turned up to watch. Um, and it quickly became apparent it was being beamed live onto television. Uh, which was slightly off-putting. We had to do full national anthems with, I'd probably say, about 1,000 people watching, TV camera crews uh, filming us. And we got thrashed. And we were like, afterwards, we were like, are we that bad? Or what, what's going on here? And we subsequently found out that the supposed Kazakhstan press were all a team of pros. They didn't play for Kazakhstan, but they played in the Kazakhstan League. So it wasn't that surprising we got thrashed. Henry Winter, formerly of the Telegraph, scored a... Excellent own headed own goal. 
um, <laughs> live on Kazakhstan television. So, and then the, the day of the game, we all got taken out by the, the mayor of Almaty um, for lunch. Um, and it wasn't any sort of normal lunch. It was about a 12 course lunch, this banquet. Um, and he made, he insisted that everybody drink a shot of the, uh, the local rocket fueled alcohol between every single course. Um, <laughs> Oh and my wouldn't god! Have it, wouldn't have it that it, it mattered that we were meant to be working that night. So it was all going a certain way, and then we we get to the game, and we get to the stadium, um, which is obviously a fairly fairly basic stadium by by English standards. And it turns out that the Kazakhstan FA have sold the English press seats um, no. for for vast amounts of money <laughs> to people who could who could sit in the press box. So we get there and there's there's no seats for us and no one in these seats is going to move for us. So a massive kind of row erupts um between members of the press and, and Kazakhstan locals and Kazakhstan FA. And the, the FA, the English FA head of communications, Adrian Bevington, got involved and he ended up just managing to source about probably 30 chairs and to the amazement of the fact that the, the Kazakhstan FA allowed it, just lined them up on the side of the pitch on the touchline. And we all just sat on the side of the touchline. John Cross of the, um, the Daily Mirror still has a picture of this on his Twitter bio um, of a section of this. And we literally just sat on chairs on the side of the pitch. Um, By the way, that's like the, the best view- angle. It's the worst angle for actually trying to write about a game. I mean, it was very interesting, but it's actually a terrible angle to try and write about a game because you're kind of at you, you know, thigh thing. height of most of the players. It's very difficult <laughs> to watch. And obviously, with a laptop on your lap, you, you can't help but be worried for the entire 90 minutes that someone's going to smash it. And I do remember in the pre-match warm-up, Ashley Cole, who by this stage of his career had developed a very healthy dislike of the English press. Um, in the warm-up, he smashed a ball straight towards us. Um, <laughs> which he obviously found hilarious trying to take someone out. And yeah, it was the most bizarre trip and incredible way to try and cover a match. And I think a lot of people ended up, I think England won the game 4-0. And I think if you were to look back, a lot of the match reports would, would centre heavily on actually the way we watched the match rather than uh, the match itself. Yeah. One of the things that blew my mind sitting in the press box, I didn't realise, and this might be obvious to other people who aren't me, but... I didn't realise that the commentators like for radio and TV are just sat behind you or beside you. You walk in, you've got John Motson or, or Martin Tyler sitting there doing commentary. I, I couldn't believe it. It was the coolest thing. You have to be yeah, careful but about it's that really, as well. Yeah, it's really good if they're speaking English, but it's terrible if they're speaking a language that's like a 50 go, miles an hour. Go, 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 go. <laughs> yeah, and you don't understand it. Like I, I was sat next to a Chinese broadcaster for one of the UV games and the whole time I was like please like, stop talking like I can't see because like I'm so overwhelmed by the noise coming out you can't ask a commentator to stop talking I know <laughs> that, that seems an unfair request to me Mina that's your lot for this week. Thank you very much for listening. You can get in contact with me before next week's show at Tom with an H Gibbs on Twitter or send us an email like Ayon Syed did. Uh, he sent us one that was about a very interesting sponsored shirt, including an Instagram link so we could all enjoy it. Thank you very much for your interest in AFCT. The address is afcpodcast.telegraph.co.uk. We'll read out the best of what you send us. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.